Far away, welcome to the Eric Andrews Lang Show. John C. McGinley just sat down, comfortable. We played uh, 12, 13 holes of golf. There you go. You want to do a sound check first? Haven't even done a Gaily sound check. Gaily a gallant knight in sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of El Dorado. But he grew old this night so bold, and o'er his heart a shadow. Fellas, he found no spot of ground that looked like El Dorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, said he, where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. And podcast done. I think that's... we. I've never finished a podcast in 38 seconds, but I think we just With an did. Edgar Allan Poe poem. That was really good. Uh, John, how do you describe yourself to people who, uh, in an elevator who, who don't know your wonderful career as a character actor? As a character actor? Do you, do you uh, call yourself that? At first, I would call myself a special needs advocate, uh, and then I would call myself a working actor who's done almost 100 films and 400 hours of television, a couple of Broadway plays, almost a dozen off-Broadway plays. I'm a guy who's made a living being a storyteller. I love that. I love that. I think uh, there's oh, we got a we got a ginger ale flying in. Thank you. Thank you, dear. Cheers. Great to see you, Mayor. Great to see you too. Uh, well, first we'll describe where we're at. We are at one of the. I think this is un, this is a very long table, but I think it's the second longest table I've ever recorded a podcast on. We've got about two, four, five seating for about twelve people at this table. <laughs> Tufted leather swivel chairs. Um, we're in the upper boardroom of the Sherwood uh, Par 3 course. Little Sherwood, you called it? I do. Um, and uh, we're here because you love golf, along I with acting. I do love golf. What I is- like golf because, like being a storyteller, and for those of us who do have, not clinically diagnosed, but a civilian version of obsessive-compulsive, um, in between gigs... If you're not memorizing lines and trying to marshal 165 people in the right direction, like on a TV or a, a movie set, as either pro- the producer or, or the producer actor, um, you, you're going to have a lot of energy left on the sidelines. Right. What are you going to do with that? And so if that is uh, sprayed around the house in a micromanaging capacity, um, it's not going to float. You're going to be least popular guy in class. And so... I found that uh, aside from surfing, which is a very different discipline than golf, um, b- but golf will will absorb all the obsessive pulse, uh, impulsive you you compulsive you want to pour into it, all of it. It'll take all of it, and then some. So, and and how, what does that actually mean? Do you, you mean like uh, obsessing over? Like when we played just now, you were like. Uh... You know, you're uh, uh, talking about swing path and, and, and coming in too steep or whatever that is. Like, you're talking about the swing itself? Yes. That because it's such a process, the whole stinking thing is a process. And I'm largely okay with that just because I'm process-driven as an actor and as a storyteller. Um, that's not unfamiliar or, or frightening to me, that that is a process and that... Um, the the immediate gratification of it all is l- largely not going to happen. Yeah. So when did you start playing golf? I was a caddy my whole life, and so I didn't play start playing golf till way too late. Um, I would say about fifteen years ago. Oh wow! Uh, and you were born in fifty uh, nine. I was born in fifty nine. Fifty nine. And you I were ca- born on my wedding day, August third. Nice. I'm divorced. Same with Marty Sheen. And my parents' wedding day. Martin Sheen's birthday? Is, yep. uh, that's his uh, birthday? Yep. 
No way. And so uh, I grew up being a caddy. I grew up in first in New York City, and then we moved up and down the eastern seaboard, and then Dad finally settled in Short Hills, New Jersey, which is this beautiful suburb of New York. Um, and there's a club, a town over in Springfield, New Jersey, which is a world championship called, course called Baldus Roll. And my father was a member there, and my brothers and I all grew up caddying there. And at the time, it was as famous as it is now. Absolutely. And it still had two courses. It was the whole deal. Absolutely. Do you know? Did you ever hear that story about how it got its name? No. Cole, will you look that up? Baltus Roll. Yes. It was a murder. A guy named Baltus Roll was murdered or something. I absolutely do not know this. It's the crazy. I don't know the story. We'll look it up. But I mean, it is. I don't know of many courses that are named after a dude that. Oh no, cell. Let's go get some cell service. Let's no, cell some, service here. Let's is log the into worst. that Wi-Fi and get this. I want to hear that story because I mean, I grew up in Madison, two towns over from Short Hills. Never being into golf, uh, I guess maybe similar to you, even though you caddied. What was it like? So you didn't play. Absolutely not. But you caddied. Nonstop. Were you were you a full judgmental caddy? No, because the members there are really rough and they're very fanatical, and they play. They're all big betters. And so I was, uh, I was pretty nimble as a caddy with different members. I knew what different members. I mean, the learning curve is pretty steep. That probably is a is a almost like a defining trait of an actor, being able to just judge people and immediately get on their level. Yeah, and also back then it was twenty five bucks a bag. I think it's a hundred bucks a bag now. Whoa! And so you wanted that twenty five plus five or ten, and. You know, that morning could yield just 60 bucks cash, no taxes taken out. Right. That's not a bad morning. You know, if it wasn't the fall when it was football or something, we'd, although we'd caddy on Sunday, um, that was a good 60 bucks is good. All right. So we got the, we got the history of Baltus Roll. History. Baltus Roll Golf Club was named after Baltus Roll, 1769, and died in 1831, who farmed the land on which the club resides today. In 1831, he was murdered at age 61 on February 22nd by two thieves who believed that he had hidden a small treasure in his farmhouse on Baltus Roll Mountain. I'll be darned. Yeah, I poor guy. My brothers know that. Baltus Roll, and his last name is spelled R-O-L-L. Oh, they've, that's been truncated. So they now it is just R-O-L. You're, uh, you, have, uh, you have members there? The, still? My brother Jerry's still a member. Oh, cool. And so when I go back east, Jerry is always nice enough to host us there, and that's pretty special. I mean, he's your brother. Yeah, but still, uh, you know, you got to leave work for a day, and it's right. pretty special when Mark when Jerry can work that out. Did you ever? Side note: Short Hills Mall. Did you ever go there? Was that around when you were there? Yeah, but it wasn't my thing. Because the Short Hills Mall is the sister mall to the Beverly Center, and so when I came to LA, I went into the Beverly Center, and I was like, "This is weird. I've already been to this mall." And then it's a little bit of a poker tell that you hang out in malls. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a tell. I don't hang out in malls. I just, I'm well, a, you just, I'm it's a, a pattern. You've I'm just a, said I've been to brother and sister malls. I've never heard a, a straight a, guy say that in my life. <laughs> so, what's going on? I'm a product of, you know, the 80s. You know, like I'm a, I'm a product of the Kevin Smith generation, clerks. You know, we go to malls to hang out. Where did you hang out as a kid? Did you hang out at the 7 Eleven? What did you do on a Friday night at 18 after caddying? Tried to get a kiss. Whatever straight, it's what every straight guy tries to do. Trying to get a kiss. Where would you do that? Because this is, we're talking uh, late 70s, right? 
Yeah, I was class of seventy eight in so Milburn High School. Did you get a car? Milburn High. Did you get when did you what did your parents do when did you get a car? I want to know I want a picture. I didn't have a car. You were allowed to use dad's car if you dropped him off at the station in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um he was a stockbroker. He was a stockbroker. And so that meant you were getting out of bed around five thirty and getting him down to the uh the Erie Lackawanna yep. uh train line that went into New York and it went into Hoboken. Uh and so if you got out of bed and drove dad down there you could use the car for the day, but you also had to pick them up. And that, uh, that is where the phrase, if you can't be on time, be early, <laughs> came from. <laughs> and so, and, and that's, uh, in retrospect, it's fair enough. If you put, on, put in a long day in the New York Stock Exchange and your jackass 18-year-old son can't be there at, we'll make it up, uh, 6.15 at night to pick you up, that's not acceptable. Oh, I would be fuming. I would too. Yeah. And all you need to do is incur that wrath once. Yeah. And you were there. Plus, he had one of those old Camaros that had way too much engine in it, but nothing on the outside. Right. Just a basic outside package with maybe 450 under the hood. And the thing was a rocket ship well and all the roads in this neighborhood are super they're 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 both good and bad right yes they're very windy and narrow yeah. and fun to drive but <laughs> dangerous you wrap around a tree with just in a in a millisecond so many trees um so you get so but you're but you're just catting so are you like um i'm just trying to picture this because i hated golf until just seven or eight years ago and now it's my life so, but you didn't hate golf. You just didn't care. I really was obsessed with football and baseball and track and, and athletics. I mean, you're and a very athletic person. So you were just... I you, didn't equate golf with, with those disciplines. Of course it is. It's close to impossible, uh, except if you're a seven. Um, and I just didn't... It, it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me. I just wanted to lift and, and get fast and, and be a better... Uh, track and field athlete and be a better wide receiver and good enough to be crushed by Madison. Uh, He's referring to our, our New Jersey rivalry, the Madison Dodgers versus the... Uh, Dodgers wh- better than us. What was, the team, what was the name of your team? I don't... I don't. First it was the Milburn Millers, <laughs> right. and then, which is largely what they should have adhered to because there is a mill, the paper mill, Right. Playhouse. Uh, in yeah, I remember that. Milburn. So we should have been the Millers. And then somebody changed us to the Milburn Bears. And what to do? That's really, that doesn't No Bears. So when did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? Uh, pretty early on. Because you made me think of mil- a Paper Mill Playhouse. I would say by the time I was a sophomore, I, I, got, I went to Ohio Wesleyan first year. And when I realized at Ohio Wesleyan, I ran the radio uh, station with a guy named Kevin Miller. And... I realized that's I really wanted to be in a storytelling capacity, whether that was journalism mm. or sports broadcasting. And to do that, you really you should be at Syracuse at you Newhouse. Would, you would have been a great sports broadcaster. I was. And uh, but when I got there, as a sophomore, you have to all the copy that you write is for upperclassmen. Right. And so I'm writing reams and reams of copy, uh, and I, it just was unacceptable to me that if I wrote it, I didn't get to say it. And so, but it, what it did reveal is that I, I really was on track to be a storyteller. And so if you want to be a storyteller, which is what I call actors, you really have to either be at Yale 
uh, NYU or, or Juilliard. Right. And uh, I applied to NYU undergrad. I got in, and I was there for two years. No, I was there for a year undergrad, and it was too big, and it was too silly. And so out of a total act of arrogance as a junior, I applied to the grad school, and they accept two people a year from undergrad. And the deal is we'll take you as a junior, but just so you understand, there's an automatic attrition rate. Every year, we cut 15. Whoa. So there's, there's, we'll accept 45. Two of you will be underclassmen. Uh, after two years, you'll get a bachelor's. But if you get kicked out at any time, you get nothing. You lose everything. You lose everything. And I was just like, well, you're not kicking me out. Uh, in fact, you're going to pay for me to come to your school, which they did. Uh, I was just like, this is how this is going to go. Right. And I don't know what that was born out of. Other than I, I knew I had to do this. I knew what I had to do. It was clear as day. Right. And for some reason, I read Alec Baldwin's book, and Alec said that he, for some reason, thought he could do this. Right. And obviously he was right. I felt the same way. And I tell actors, I work with act, young actors all the time, when they come out and they tell me they have a plan B, I just tell them, please, please do the plan B. Because <laughs> it's going to be so much better. It's going to be better. What? The plan, if you have a plan B, it's going like to... Like going to business school? Do go to business school. Why? It's going to be better. No, being an actor... Be, because being an actor is impossible. You have a lot of friends that have failed? Sure. Because you've... You, how would you characterize your outcome? Absurdly... Uh, absurd. Success. Yeah. But, but that's insane. Why? Well, sure. But I mean... No, you do, should do, do you, something, unless you have to do... I, look, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a story that was ingrained in my head. Up at Syracuse, the one year I was there, because it's so cold. I don't know if you've ever been up there, but mm -hmm. the school's on a hill. Mm -hmm. And Lake Onondaga, I think, is right below it. And so it's the same as Chicago. When it freezes over, the lake effect, the wind blows across, and it hits the side of the hill where Syracuse is with supercharged cold air. Yeah. And so once the cold comes, you really... You can't like go outside for a jog or do physical fitness. You have to do something indoors. So I decided I would try fighting. I would box. Right. And so I found a gym down in Syracuse, and I'd, I'd run off the, down the hill, and I had this guy who would, you know, if you pay him 15 bucks a, a day to let, let you use the gym, he would also he'd coach you up and tell you where your elbows should be and the whole routine. And so I, I started to get pretty good at it, at, at training at boxing. Yeah. I got fast and strong. And he, about four months in, towards the springtime, he said, you want to you spar with somebody? I'm like, absolutely. And I was about 182. And 82 is where the light heavyweights and the heavy welterweights are. It's where the freaks are. Yeah. And so think of Andrew Holifield before he became a heavyweight. So the, that's who the 182s are. So you put the headgear on. And this guy, I was, I was staying away from him for about, I don't know, two and a half minutes or so. And then he just hit me with a body shot, just a right to my liver. And it buckled me. And I immediately knew that unless you have to do this, you shouldn't. And I feel the same way about acting. That unless you have to do it, definitely do something else. I had to do this. I had to. There was no possible way this wasn't going to work out. Hmm. Whatever, whatever metric that looked like. Um, that, that, there was an Irish willfulness that I imposed on this. And I got really lucky, and I trained my ass off and came up with a toolkit, uh, an actor's toolkit 
of ways to deconstruct a script and ways to fit into a narrative, which have become indispensable. Right. Um, so when you are, but is there is there some element of when you're telling people to go do the alternate? Is are you also sort of doing the reverse psychology? No, absolutely not. Because don't you want them to be an actor and be successful? No. Don't you want that? No. I, I want them if I want them to to have a, a a fulfilling, stimulating life instead of just being the object of rejection, which is what you're going to be. Even at your level? No, but on the way up. Right. Um, when did you, you when did it stop mattering to you the feeling of rejection? After the financial windfall that was Scrubs. Right. Uh but on the way up, so if you're you just, if you're selling if you're selling keychains as a keychain salesman, and and you're not it's not going well. At night, every night when you get home, when you look at the man in the mirror, you can reconcile the failure by something wrong with the keychain, not wrong with you. Uh-huh. It, it can be the product. When you you're, you're me, the when you get rejected as an actor, we're rejecting you. We're doing the film. Just not with you. <laughs> and so the reason that's tricky is that you can get really good at getting tough skin and leathery skin that can fight off rejection. However, there's a price. And if you get too leathery uh, uh, emotionally, you lose your loveliness and you lose whatever magic you had that made, made you interesting. Because now you just you can put up with rejection and your fists up and rejection's not going to bother you, but that's not what that's not what makes you lovely. What makes you lovely is whatever that vulnerability was that got tarred over, it got asphalted over by all that rejection. Look, when when I got to school, get out of school in '84, um, I I went right into a play. I, two weeks before I graduated, I was understudying John Totoro in Dating the Deep Blue Sea, so I had employment, but. Uh, and that was $318 a week to make up John's hands and call the house and then make up June. It's a two-hander. and uh, That's a lot of money. No, it's not. No? no. More than caddying. No, I was making that a night at, at, the, at Mary Lou's. I was making 500 bucks a night and then okay. paying the bar and the bus and walking with, you know, 325 a night. Okay. So to stop working at Mary Lou's on 9th Street between 5th and 6th, right when you get off the... Uh, the path train there, uh, that was, I had to do it. Otherwise, and the reason I had to do it is A, I got to play, and B, you'd be de-incentivized to go to the seventh audition that day. Right. Well, you have to go to the seventh audition for, you know, for Tide, yeah. for Colgate Palmolive. You have to go to that. Because you never know or because it's just... No, it's, because that's what you have to do. You just have to do you it. You don't know anything. Right. You're not going to get it, but you got to grind. <laughs> It sounds awful. I don't it know is. if I could do. I don't know if I could do auditions. Well, you have to get good at them. They're just like uh, like putting. You can get good at auditions. That doesn't mean you're going to get get the job, but you can get good at that two and a half three minute discipline. Which is like, what's the main characteristic that needs to be flexed in an audition? Really quick study. Okay. Of the people in the room or what they want. Of the text, what's on the page. Ah, okay. And then next level would be quick study of what's on the page and what's in the room. And then I made up this concept called Elvis Dust. And Elvis El- Dust... Elvis Presley. Yeah, Elvis Dust. Elvis Dust. And Elvis Dust, I was Oliver Stone's reader. So when you came into audition for Oliver, you had your script and the person you were reading with 
wasn't the casting director. The three people in the room were the casting director, Oliver, uh, I'm sorry, the four people were the guy operating the camera, Oliver, the casting person, and me. And was this before you worked with him a lot? No, this was after Wall Street. Yeah, this is just your... Yeah, two films in. He, he's just like, come and hang. Yeah, come, and no, not like, come and hang, come and do me a favor. And so I'm like, yeah, if you keep putting me in movies, I'll do you whatever, and he put me in six. So it all worked out. It's a good number. And so, uh, yeah, one better than your handicap. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> actors would come in, and I developed this concept that I called Elvis Dust. And what it means is, and it's applicable to any business, but for actors particularly, actors come in the room, and a lot of times they would, the first thing they'd say to Oliver, and I'm sitting over here, Oliver's here, I'm just, I'm on the sidelines. Yeah. And I want you to succeed, because I love actors. And I know how hard walking in this room with Oliver Stone is. And I'm sitting over here, and I see you come in, and the first thing out of your mouth is that you haven't had a chance to read the script because your aunt died down in Philadelphia a week ago and you had to go to the wake last night and you just took the train up this morning and so um, uh, all the air is coming out of the balloon. Yeah, and everyone is expecting you to fail now? Or what is no, that? What happens? you're subverting everything and I call that pig pen. And so, you know like in Peanuts when that guy has the dirt that precedes him yeah. and follows Linus. him everywhere? No, pig pen. Oh, that's pig pen, right. And so I call that pig pen. And so sometimes actors bring in pig pen and I, I just cringe. And then other times, actors bring in Elvis dust. And Elvis dust is a combination of, and you can't, you can't fabricate it. If you could, it would, it would be the gold stuff. But it's a combination of self-esteem, preparation, being in the right room at the right time, and luck. And preparation is no small part of this. But it's also self-esteem, just you're feeling just top of the world right and that stuff is contagious and i call it elvis dust because when you when you bring it in like i brought it in on seven when i met david fincher on seven i had elvis dust all over me i <laughs> don't know why but that role of california was written for a latin male and the producer who all arnold copelson rest in peace who just passed who also produced platoon and that's why he brought me in to meet david fincher uh to play this great little featured role in that film uh he just brought me in because he's one of the great guys, but it was for a Latin, it was written for a Latin man, male. And I just had Elvis dust all over me. And when you have Elvis dust on you, people want to just, they want to rub up against it a little bit. Right. They want to get some on them. And when actors bring in Elvis dust, it's, it's a whole different game. It's fascinating. So, I mean, I need to ask, how do you, how does one increase their odds of acquiring Elvis dust at the right moment? You can't, other than just over-preparing and over-delivering. Because, I mean, Elvis dust, great for an audition, also great for uh, a nerve-wracking first tee shot. No question. What do you think is the most important thing in playing good golf? A couple of, one or two thoughts over the ball. One or two clear thoughts about whatever your teacher told you. Just one or two clear thoughts instead of, I'm going to whack this really hard or uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take 10% off this. For, for 12s, I, I can't take 10% off a swing. I don't know how to do that. And so uh, just a clear 
a clear thought, a shoulder turn. I'm going to really rotate my shoulders this time and swing. Right. That's, that's all. That's all I have. At, I'm not at the next level where these other guys are. And, and so I want one or two really clear, um, useful thoughts. Really just one. Yeah. That's ideal. The fewer the better. So, so uh, who do you have to thank for getting you into golf? Because you, know, you spend your life around golf, and then what happens 15 years ago is, uh, to get you into playing? I moved out here. Yeah. Uh, and but you moved out here in the 80s, 90s, right? No, I moved out here... Uh, I moved Mid-90s? out here late. Late 90s? I, I suppose around 93 or so. Okay, all right. And when I came out here... Uh, where I lived, there used to be a, a course right up on the side of the mountain, right. and people would say, "Come up and play." And it was only 11 minutes from the house, and the price point was around 27 bucks. And I just started to uh, really enjoy it, making contact with the ball. Did you just you just went out basically out of uh, you were you you were in between gigs. Yes, and you were like, "Well, I can, I'm I'm free, save for a couple auditions here and there." Or were you even doing auditions at this time? Oh, absolutely. At what point do you, do you ever stop doing auditions? Um, I don't think you ever would. Like if Marty if Marty Scorsese or some Hall of Famer said, uh, "We'd love to see John for uh, a certain certain movie," I, I damn sure go on an audition. But otherwise, no, you you you. You'd be good and goddamn lucky to have me on your set. Fist bump. That is, that is so legit. That, I think, I just... And believe me, that's not born that, out of arrogance. I think that's what Elvis dust smells like. Yes. <laughs> that's awesome, dude. Um, so, okay, but back to the golf. So, so you get into the golf. You're, you're basically just... You, there, people are just inviting you out. And you're like, Most, I'll try mostly this. Mostly up to the, the course on the side of the hill. And... Uh, I just th- I thought it was great, and it felt impossible. I knew everything about the game yeah. as a caddy. Yeah, I didn't know how to execute, <laughs> but I knew I knew distances. I can read a green in my sleep. Uh, but then s- swinging that club and uh, it just became really hard. Like we were in the Philippines doing platoon, and I I wasn't playing golf by then, and that was '86. So. A bunch of guys were playing golf back then, but I wasn't one of them. So in the Philippines, yeah, we were staying in a place called Porto Azul, uh, where Mar- uh, this guy named Ferdinand, Ferdinand Marcos, who was the president of the Philippines, had built it for visiting friends, and it was kind of this resort about two hours outside Manila, and that's where we, where we were housed during the jungle sequences. Okay, and so we lived there for about three months, and a bunch of guys were playing golf and stuff but I, I i don't ever remember going and playing golf so and then because i guess i'm just so curious because as a you know at the time you're surfing i'm assuming all the time yes and uh i'm just thinking about surfing being so different from golf and are you must must be what what on earth happened in a round of golf for you to stop going surfing and just start playing golf more well Surfing has a condition. There has to be a bump. Uh, and so if it's Lake Pacific, then you ain't surfing. <laughs> Lake Pacific. And so, you know, you just come over here. And, again, you can pour all that obsessive-compulsive into Sherwood. I love it. But no one's ever here. Yeah. Uh, so 
and I play by myself largely. Uh, I'm saying largely too much. I mostly play by myself because I like it. The editor, Johnny uh, C. And I'll, I'll play the first ball I hit, and then if it wasn't what I wanted, uh, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to groove five or six more. They right. don't count, but you have to play the first uh, for your hand, to submit the handicap. Uh, but there's no one behind you to bug you, right. and there's no one in front of you. That, it's, so it's heaven to me. Yeah, it's a very beautiful piece of property. We we played we played golf and we filmed a lot of it, so you can get a view of that. Let's uh let's take a I got I Johnny I got uh I made cookies, and I haven't made cookies on the podcast in a while, so I don't know if you eat cookies, but either way we can take a break and you can have one if you want, or you or you can turn it down. What do you think you're gonna do? Well, if you made them, I gotta try you them. Have a bike. But we don't have to take a break. But we can't. Well, we're not supposed to eat on the podcast. A lot of people gave me shit for that, and I found that there's he's eating. He doesn't give a shit. No, you, you can't possibly care if people give you shit for eating on the podcast. I do care. Why do I? <laughs> I don't know why. I, either way, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about eating on the podcast. We'll be right back. Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason. And we have a couple of podcasts. If you, you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy. And we have a podcast called Dumb People Town, where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. All right, all day. Yeah, whoa, can't read. I can't read, everybody. All right, everybody. The holidays are always a great time to literally boost your footwear game. You know I love the boost. The boost, by the way. Can we do we even know what boost is? Boost, like, came from NASA. Google it. Prove me wrong. Tell me that there's something better than Boost, and I will literally block you. No, but there is nothing better than Boost. Like, Boost is the jam. Anyway, for the holidays, boost your footwear game and do yourself a favor. Hop over to adidas.com and click on the golf selection. The golf section could be a gift for, oh, get a gift for someone else, y'all. But Adidas makes sure that you can't go wrong. And that's pretty true. Like, I can't find a pair of Adidas shoes that I don't like. Right now, I'm digging the Ryder Cup Special Editions, which. Obviously, you can't get. I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean that to come out in a douchey way. It's just true. Um, but that style, I actually can't think of the name of the style. I think it's the Tour 360. I love that shoe. It's the most comfortable shoe ever. I'll wear it by the beach. Um, anyway, uh, there's the new Addy Power Forged. Ooh, that's a slick shoe, actually. I did get a peek at that. That's on the website right now. Uh, Addy Power Forged, and of course my favorites. Ah, oh, Joel knows my favorites when he writes this. The Tour 360 and the Tour 360 Knit. Tour 360, obviously you're getting the waterproof full leather upper. Tour 360 Knit, a little more breathable, a little more uh, fresh for the hipsters out there. But they both have all of that, uh, you know, super grippy, sticky spikes. Uh, you know, soft spikes. Soft spikes. Uh, don't forget the Addy Cross and Addy Pure. I love the Addy Pure. That is the Justin Rose style. That is the Addy Pure basically you can wear anywhere. You can wear it to a tea time or a date, and I promise you're going to get good looks. Uh, I hear there's also something new coming early next year, which I'm stoked about. I did hear that. I actually saw that, so watch out, folks. Get ready for that. So go to Adidas uh, or follow Adidas Golf for all the latest news and info at Adidas Golf, A-D-I-D-A-S-G-O-L-F. Yeah, check it out. Get that. Get boosted for the holidays, y'all. Um, later. I think eating on the podcast. Thank you for waiting, everybody. I think. I don't know. I mean, people don't want to hear you eating or me. Anyone. I, I now understand what you mean. My mother is a lovely, lovely woman. 
insists on calling from Short Hills with her mouth full of food. And, of course, when someone's talking to you with some He's spaghetti in their mouth, I always tell, I say, Mom, I love you. Can I call you back in 10 minutes? Yeah. Because I can't handle this. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. See, I used to think it was okay. And I think, I don't know how many comments we got about the cooking, the eating cookies on the podcast, but I was ultimately like, why do I care? Why am I, why do I need to eat? I made the cookies for fun. They're actually uh, gluten-free. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't know why. I just, I, anyway, did you like it? Do you need a hug? Was the cookie good? No, I don't need a hug. I just want to know if you like the cookies. C minus. C minus. Moving on. Uh, other hobbies? You like gardening? Yeah, and I'm also dad the driver. I like to, when I'm, when I'm away, I don't get to bring people to ballet and pottery and, and, and different. Max has different uh, therapies. Uh, Max was born with Down syndrome. Yeah. And so we go to different, we used to go to different therapies. He's mostly moved on from that. Uh, but I like. He, how old is he now? Max is 21. Wow. And so I like to, I like to drive people to things. Mostly because when you're in the car with me, nothing's going to go wrong as far as accidents and and distracted driving and um, I don't know whatever goes wrong on, on the roads in California. A lot of things go wrong, but everything's going to be fine. What do you? What's the car activity? Music, talking, book, talking. on tape. Talk, you hang. Yeah. What's the average duration of the car ride? Thirty minutes. Thirty no minutes. more. So it's a real good yeah, coming hang. over the hill. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. We just we came over the hill yesterday to gymnastics, and uh, you know once gymnastics starts, I'll go get a car wash or go to the hardware store or do something, but uh, or stay and watch some of it. But sometimes they get self conscious when I stay. So uh, the car ride to and from is great because right. I get you trapped and we can have stories. Right. So uh, you've devoted a lot of your free time not just to golf but to Down syndrome. Um, you you made a charity, or are you? You're I'm on, on the, the board. I'm on the board, board of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation in Denver. Right. And I'm also a global ambassador for the Special Olympics, and it's our 50th anniversary this year. Wow. And so November 30th, I was invited to go down and give a keynote address in Washington, D.C. at a big black tie gala. And so I wrote that piece the other day. And How long is it? How many pages? Uh, it's, I was supposed to fill 20 minutes, and uh, oh. which is, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but it's a lot. That's a lot. And so what is that going to look like for John the actor versus John the activist? Um, it's e really easy to come from truth as an activist for me. And so uh, if I start to share stories about what our needs are and what, how, how when people use the word retard and retarded, which we call the R word. You have, how, a, you have a big uh, fight against this word. Well, we have, a, we have a campaign called Spread the Word to End the Word at yeah. the Special Olympics, crafted by the athletes at the Boise World Woodern Games 10 years ago. Um, self-advocates uh, who, who got together. Every, a component of every World Games is a youth leadership conference. And so it's 200 um, self-advocates, which you have to almost wrap your head around. It's people with challenges who uh, have the wherewithal and the capacity to advocate for themselves. And so we had athletes from around the planet, from South Africa, from uh, Australia, from England, everywhere. And they were tabling different issues that they found objectionable right and the consensus was they were sick and tired of of being called and being subjected to 
the put-downs of the R-word. Mm. And so we start to craft a campaign around it. Because that's the most offensive thing you can say to someone with a disability like that. Well, I don't, I don't know what the most offensive thing is, but it, it certainly it puts down a population that has never done anything to anybody and is, for the most part, just trying to get through the day. And so when you, when you use that language... Uh, the the most heinous part is that there's no consequence. You're saying use that language like, as in to describe something that doesn't make any sense. You would you would call it no. So in other words, if you say, uh, "Boy, Eric was sure acting like a retard," so that perpetuates a negative stigma right. about a population that de facto is less than. Right. Oh. Well, that's not fair. And the reason it's not fair is because that population can't uh, return serve. So in other words, if you use the N-word or if you, if you put down the gay and lesbian community or the Jewish community and say that you're acting like a, a pejorative word for those groups, sure. there will be a tax, a T-A-X. There'll be a consequence for your language. Yeah. When you pick on our group, if you knowingly do it, it makes you a punk-ass coward because you've picked the perfect group who can't return serve. And so I want to be the guy who... Uh, maybe marshals some consequence. Well, I'm down to do this with you. I'll be honest, I've used that word. I don't know how I've used it, but out of, I don't know, I guess some people say it and you get used to it. Some comedians use it and you're like, well, I can call things retarded. That right, but you can also do sense. that with black people or Italians or um, Latins yeah. and there's a consequence. Right. And so um, I guess- You put down black people, there will be a consequence. Well, and as there should be, I think. Well, that, as there should be for the special needs community. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, I think it's just. So what I do, the the entrance in there. I, you know what? Here's well, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that no one's ever asked me not to use that word. It's just on my conscience to to figure that out. Which I don't know. I guess I'm glad we're sitting here. Well, when I, I teach at, at UCLA and USC to the screenwriters, everyone, the grad screenwriters, every once in a while, and what we sometimes one of the topics we table is isn't there a better way to say what you're trying to say in your script than using the R word? Is, is that, in fact, lazy writing? Oh, because if you, you must, as a, as a, you must run into this word. Oh, nonstop. Now that I'm tuning your ear to it, it's all you're going to hear. So when you run into the word professionally, are you like, are you fucking kidding me? No. What my, just, my question to... is, is there a better way to say that? And then the, the answer, the answer is, is always yes. is, say what? And I say the words <laughs> retard and retarded. Whoa. And then people are like, well, I didn't mean anything. I'm like, oh, because it's super offensive. And they're it like, is super offensive, right? Beyond. Yeah. I'm sorry. And so, uh, you don't have to be sorry. You haven't used it in front of me. And so the, I, the, and what I encourage people to do is ask the person using that language, is there a better way to say what you just were saying? Hmm. And then a conversation starts. The person invariably goes, what? What did I just say? And the answer is, well, you said uh, that uh, your brother was acting like a retard. And the person was like, well, he was. I'm like, that's really offensive to people who have children who were born with Down syndrome. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm like, you don't have to be sorry. It's just now that you know, it's really offensive. First one's free. First one's free. And that's how you operate. That's sure. cool. That's cool, man. Because, I mean, the last thing you want to do is dig someone a hole and make him feel like shit. But at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that doesn't work. Since the fact of the matter is you're allowed to use... You are legally allowed to use any language you want, unless you're saying a theater is on fire or something. You you can disparage so. black people. You can disparage Jews, gays, lesbians. You actually lesbians. can. You, it's not absolutely to use no. You can disparage all those groups. You, you, you but there will, will be a consequence. There's a consequence. Yeah, 
Yeah. Wow. There's some... Well, in Germany, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. Correct. But not in America. In America, you're, you're free. You're, your right to a freedom of speech entitles you to disparage groups as you please. Witness Charlotte, Charlottesville. Yeah. And so... It's terrifying. Um, so, but there's a consequence. Yeah. But not with the special needs community. So we filmed a lot with the... Uh, there's a Special Olympics golf team. Yes. In Ventura. Uh, no, sorry, in Valencia. And uh, we, I filmed with them. We should actually find that footage. We have it somewhere. I, we didn't use it. Um, but we, we filmed with them. I, I went to a tournament with them. I played uh, golf with them at the Valencia Country Club. I've never been there. Oh, yes, I shot there once. Yeah. It's the one on the flats by the five. I know where that place is. Can you give me some there's, a Valencia, there's a Valencia uh, TPC. T- TPC. Yeah, that's nice. We didn't play there. I shot there once. Yeah. Uh, we should find this footage. There. There's some really good footage from there. And I mean, we just had the best time. And, and you know, I interviewed the coach of the team. And um, I said to him, um, I'm going to improvise here because I can't really remember what the conversation was. But it was very poignant. I said, I said, what is the hardest part, right, for you? And he said, it's watching other people uh, treat the kids differently. Right. You know what I'm talking about? Of course. Because, I mean... All they probably want to be is the same. Or I don't really, I guess I'm like, can you elaborate? I guess what I'm wondering. Well, we talk about inclusion and elevation all the time. And to be included is really what we, what we most prize. So in other words, when I was as, growing up. As any human, you mean? Of course. Right. And in the special needs community, we, we really cherish being included. And then if there's, if the, if the, Bonus is to be elevated, um, not only to be included, but to be elevated into equality, not necessarily just included, but to be equal, uh, that's heaven. And it rarely happens. So I guess um, you must have, or you have three kids. I do. Um, Do you spend, are you full time with all of them? Yeah, Max goes between uh, his mom's house and mine. Right. So... I guess um, with Max, what, what is what is like the memory of of your relationship that sticks out the most that that might uh, sort of in, include people in your world of of what's happened since the day he's been born and sort of the mission you've gone on. The 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 two funniest things um, that Max McGinley has done that that are immediately accessible to me is that he works down at uh, a Starbucks down in Santa Monica now. And he's kind of a utility infielder slash um, greeter slash whatever you need. And he has a shadow who, who helps him. And we have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on elocution and speech and enunciation because that's one of our, our biggest challenges. And by virtue of, of saturation exposure to... Uh, the Latin community at Santa Monica High School and our housekeeper, uh, Max only speaks Spanish at Starbucks. So people come in, which is the single greatest thing I've ever heard. People come in and he'll say, hola, senorita, hola, senorita bonita, como esta? And I'm like, what did you just say? Ah, hasta luego. What? You what? There was one? Right. (laughs) 
It's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Right. And I think he got it from uh, a, a really stunningly amazing Latin community at, at Santa Monica High, which must have imprinted him and impacted on him in a, in a really positive way. And Maria, who works for, work, works for us, uh, only speaks to my two daughters in Spanish so that they'll be bilingual by exposure, and it's working. Uh, and so Max has picked up on that. And so at Starbucks, he uh, speaks Spanish, which cracks me up. It, is, that, it, it sounds really interesting. I mean, it sounds really, uh, I could just see it. I could see it being funny. The other one is that for the first 10 or 11 years of Max's life, when he'd get on a plane, he, he had a gag response to it. He would throw up. Whoa. And so you do that two or three times, and you're like, okay, we're not flying. And so life was mostly um, up in Ventura County, Santa Barbara, down to San Diego. That's where we, which is fine in the car because you can go down to all, there's all sorts of things to do in San Diego with a kid from whatever you can think of, from Disneyland to, to, to uh, the, the aquarium to the zoo to up in Santa Barbara. So it's great. But then one year, uh, Thanksgiving was back in Jersey, and it is every year. But uh, I was like, no, come on, we got to go. We got to figure this out. And so I said, okay, to Nicole, my wife, I said, well, Max and I are going to sit up front in first class, see that if that's okay. And uh, Max and, and uh, or Nicole and the baby, uh, Billy Grace, would sit in the back because the baby didn't matter for the baby. And so Max and I got on the plane, we took a left, and we got up to the first class, and he was not gagging. And so I'm like, wow, this is great. And so we had every toy on the planet, from a Wii to a, um, a DS, whatever you could think of, dolls, anything. And so we get over Chicago, and I'm like, oh, be darn, this is going great. And I said, you know what? Let's go back and say hi to Nicole and Billy Grace. And so Max and I get up, and as soon as we go past the coffee station into coach, two seats in, Max turns to a baby in, in, in row 12 and just throws up all over the baby. <laughs> So we turned around. I apologized to the woman and the baby, tried to help, I brought Max back up to first, put him down, couldn't have been happier. And so all I can think in my brain is that when you get to see St. Peter at the pearly gates and, and, and you know, Max finally gets there after you, and, and I go, Did, what was it the throwing up on the plane? And Max would be like, I just wanted to ride in first. <laughs> I didn't have a problem flying. Yeah. It's just first class is better. Coach just makes me nauseous. What can I say? It's the most genius play. I hope that's the play. That's it really would make me so happy if that's the play. It could be. And, and maybe there's even a play to the, to the uh, Spanish at Starbucks. There could be even something there that we, don't, we can understand. That'd be great. It, it, yeah. it makes me really happy. He's like, I didn't think. really want to answer any questions. Right. Yeah. And Spanish people just, you know, they just high bye. It's great. Um, what, uh, what, what, what do you think is... You, know, you spend a lot of time playing golf when you have time. Um, I do. What, what do you, I know kind of what you get out of it. What has it given you, do you think? I go to play golf with my brothers in Ireland every, it used to be spring, now it's late summer. Uh, it used to be with my father, which would be the foursome. It would be my father, Jerry, Mark, and myself. And so what it's given me is a fighting chance against two golfers who are much better than me. And that is beyond satisfying to be in the hunt. Right. Uh, so that's what 
that's what being able to come to Sherwood and grind away. So that when I get to Ireland, I, I have a clue. I have one or two of those swing thoughts working with Jerry Allen, the pro here, who's a great teacher. I have one or two swing thoughts that can keep me in a skins game with Jerry and Mark. That's, um, and believe me, be, being able to be in it and relevant is much more fun than being OB and you're hitting three. Yeah, that is a very hard way to play. How do you even deal with that? Because you know, playing bad golf is harder than just I, not playing golf. You had mentioned it out on the course, and it's something my, Jer- my brother Jerry and I talk about all the time, is managing expectations. So on almost every hole there, bogey's pretty darn good. Yeah. And if, if a par happens, you're definitely getting a skin. And if a birdie happens, that should be, that should be great. Yeah. Because they don't happen that much. You and I had two birdies today on a par three. Yeah. I think birdies should be, they should be allowed to be great. Yeah. And not, uh, wow, that was really fun. Not that was really fun. It was extraordinary. It was pretty incredible. If, if you take other things off the board, like eagles, and eagles are not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, not in Ireland. It's just not. Right. Uh, and you're not going to hole anything. And so a birdie... Uh, that that should be just incredible, right? And that should fill your cup. And then if you're expect, I mean, I, I it's funny you said that on the course. I haven't uh, stopped thinking about it. Also in the special needs community, we we kind of uh, trade on managing expectations. What do you mean trade? That's how we butter our bread. You you have to manage your expectations. If you if you your expectations, my expectations for Max are one thing, uh-huh. and then what Max chooses to do are another. So we got to meet somewhere. And so unless, you, unless one manages one's expectations, it's going to be an exercise in frustration. And that's not fair. Not, not for someone who, who's trying their hardest. Right. And getting through the day. And guess what? Sometimes that's great. That's we. That's great. Is that the biggest thing you learned from that relationship? No, but the two biggest things I learned from Max is what love is and what patience looks like. Uh, and those are two that that love is not cotton candy and and unicorns. It's a grind, and it's it's compensating to sometimes for people who can't compensate for themselves and it's running an extra lap and it's an opportunity to be a great parent because you're going to have to be you're going you have an opportunity to be something great for the first time in your life most of us are going to go through life paying the bills making the car payments doing a a c plus b minus job at work and when you when you're when you have a kid born with special needs you you got to elevate you got to do better you have a chance to be great at something. It's right on a plate. It's right there for you to be great. Because if you're not, this whole thing is going to shit the bed. And so you have a chance to be great at something. How many people share that perspective? I don't know, but I speak with a lot of different parental groups. And that's the number one thing that I have to share with them. That most of us, I don't, I don't say most of you, most of us... Mm. Mm. We aspire to be good at stuff. That's, that's pretty much okay. That's, that's going to get you through 
whether it's the corporate culture or whatever we're, ladder we're trying to climb or not get noticed or don't pick on me and just let me do my C plus or my B minus and I just, I don't want to bother anyone. So I want to just be okay at this. That's not going to be good enough with a child with special needs and a child with Down, born with Down syndrome. You have a chance to be great at something. Great. You get to be a great parent. You're never going to be great at golf. You're never going to be great at scuba diving. You're not going to be great at all this other bullshit. You're going to be a great parent. And at the end of the day, how do you know? I don't know what the scorecard is. I think that you have to reconcile that. Uh, you have to reconcile that right behind your sternum. You, you have to. That's a case by case. No one can. No one can define the terms of that. Because golf's pretty simple, right? Yes. As far as scoring goes, it's pretty simple. And then, what score in golf do you keep track of most? Well, uh, here. Uh, what's three times 18, 54. <laughs> so par here is 54. What I mean is, so I'm always trying to flirt with 54. Do you, but what I mean is you're writing down your score. When we yes. played today, you kept a score, you kept your scorecard, you kept my score. What is that really though? Why you play? Um, to better your score. I play to get better at golf, yeah. And uh, it's not, I'm not coming out here to masturbate. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm coming out here to get better at something. And, and there is a metric out has, here for getting to me. better at something. Right. And so, I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've been a 22 handicap, and now I'm, you know, rightfully down at around 12. I wish it was less, but that's about where, yeah, that's about where I am. Right. And that's, I have played, and so I'm, I'm Mr. Binge Golfer, so when we're shooting, like this year, Stand Against Evil, we're shooting from, excuse me, we're either doing pre-production from April through the middle of uh, July to the end of July, doing yeah. post. So we're shooting for about a month and a half in Georgia, but pre, pre-game is about equal, about a month and a half, and post is about a month and a half. And so golf stops. Stops. Hard, hard stop. Yes, it has to. That's intense. And then I dive back in, and I get reacquainted with golf with Jerry, with Jerry Allen, the pro here. Right. So you don't get, you know, bad habits. I'm, I'm reminded of um, guys who shoot free throws. You know, you can either shoot free throws with your elbow out and do it wrong, or you can, you know, have your index finger the last thing to touch the ball and get that beautiful backspin that guys with a beautiful stroke at the free throw line. I get reacquainted with golf um, the last couple of years because uh, Stan's been on for three years now. I, I just get with Jerry for the first week or two right. and just kind of get reacquainted with a path and with tempo uh, and managing expectations. You've had six hole-in-ones at the Sherwood par three. Now, I mean, I played it. I was thirsty for hole-in-one, didn't get one. But, I mean... That's a lot of hole-in-ones. And I've done uh, four of them in front of my teacher, so that felt good. Wow. In front of Jerry. So, so that felt very validating because, of course, if I pick up the phone and call my brother, Jerry McGinley and Mark McGinley, <laughs> they're going to throw the bullshit card down so fast yeah. and make your head spin. Second ball, whatever it is. I'm like, dude, call the pro. Right, right. Call the stinking pro, <laughs> you Irish mutts. <laughs> call Jerry Allen. 
right. who's never told a lie in his life. Right. I love that. What of all the roles you've played in your life, you played more than a hundred. What does what what was your favorite? What was it? What not not what was your favorite job? Not what was your favorite location? What was the character that John was like? This is it. This is my guy. The hardest thing I ever did was four years ago. We did a, a revival of Glen Gary, Glen Ross on Broadway Whoa. with Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale and Richard Schiff and David. Oh, Richard, do you play golf with Schiff ever? No, but we just we shared our lives together. We stopped our life and shared our life together for for five months. He's the angriest golfer on earth. Moving Richard on. is. Oh yeah, he made he's he one has, of the best actors on the planet. He has a second set of clubs in the trunk in case he breaks the entire first set. I'm kidding, but I mean he's pretty. We, we play golf together a bunch. Oh God, is he a good actor? Yeah, he's a very um, good actor. Well, Richard and I came out on a stage every night for about 17 minutes in the first act of Glengarry. And we just destroyed it. Awesome. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And then because we crushed it so utterly, it was the most satisfying and exciting thing I've ever done. It's one of the more quotable uh, plays turned movies. Yes, but you got to remember, Alex's character is not even in the play. He's an ah. offstage threat. And so when people say, it's always such a tell when people go, oh, I love that play. And then they quote Alex's lines. I'm like, it's the movie. You never saw the play, did you? Okay. Well, I mean, I've only seen two plays in my life, so. Well, if you ever get a chance to see Glengarry, see it. It's okay. astonishing. I I love there. There's. I mean, I've seen the movie. Uh, I think two or three times. The movie's very different than the play because really? the movie unfolds very casually over this rainy night in Chicago. Yeah. The play is a fucking hurricane. Really? Yeah. The first act is about 32 minutes, and then you're out on. We were at the Schoenfeld on 44th, and so. You're out on 44th Street having a cigarette 32 minutes after you sat down, and you don't even know what just happened. <laughs> and then the second act is about 50 minutes long, and you're done. You're, you're on the train back to Connecticut before 10 o'clock. Whoa. It's fantastic. It's thrilling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is. I mean, even the film itself, it's just, I, I don't know. I just love the, uh, there's something about the archetype of a salesman, you know, and I don't know what it is, but it's this... Um, I don't know. I mean, you tell me. What is it? What is it about a salesman that we love? First of all, it's impossible yeah. to sell somebody something that they don't need, like in <laughs> Glengarry, another piece of land. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I think, really great salesmen, of which my father was, uh, for, really? in, sto in the capacity of stocks and bonds mm. and managing people's money. Um, you have to you have to employ every every shred of imagination you could po possibly muster, and maybe you don't have that much Im imagination, so you're not going to be that great of a salesman. Uh, but there's some there's some magic to it. There's some chicanery. There's some lying. Um, I think that cocktail you got to mix a bunch of different stuff in there uh, for someone to be. There's some authenticity, uh, or f there's there's the me having you believe that I'm authentic. Right. And that I believe what I'm telling you, which is not different than an actor. I was going to say. Whatever, what, what I always tell actors is that, that, that what you're doing is a lie. So in other words, I'm not Dr. Cox. I'm not Stan in Stand Against Evil. I'm not the guy in Platoon. I'm not the guy in Wall Street. Those are characters that Oliver and Dana Gould and, and Bill Lawrence put on a page. And so if the actors can find a way to reduce the profundity of that lie 
whether it's going and trailing at a hospital for three weeks and, and becoming at least familiar with what goes on in a hospital so that the actor can then take that leap and, again, reduce the lie. That's what, we, that's what the lens suffers as really good acting. So when Bob De Niro all of a sudden becomes a boxer in Raging Bull, we believe him. He's not a boxer. He's an actor. He's from, so, he's from lower, lower East Side. He's just this Italian guy. And he became, uh, we believed, he was Jake LaMotta. He's not. He's Bob De Niro. And so you believe that I was Sergeant O'Neill in Platoon. I'm not. I'm just it's this guy from New York who grew up in Jersey. And so if there's some way, so Oliver put us through that three-week boot camp in the Philippines uh, so that actors could reduce the scope of that lie. And that's all the lens sees, is you reducing that lie. And then if you can add your truth to it, to the lie, it reduces it even more. And so we believe you even more. And that's all you're doing, is you're just trying to reduce that lie to just a little bit. It's still a lie. It's just, the lens only sees a little bit, and that's the trick. And when actors can do that, however they do it, everyone has their different processes, processes. Uh, then all of a sudden, storytelling becomes super engaging. I'll be honest. I got kind of sad when you just told me that you're not any of these characters. And not. I'm not an idiot. I know you're I, not. I know what you mean. I know you're not. But, but there, there is, it's, well... I guess I'm different, right? Because for me, I host a show where I go be me. I'm not entirely me, but I'm a lot me. And I go here and I'm like, look, I'm interested in this. Let's go look at this. And so if someone comes to me and they say, oh, I love that show, I say, thank you. That means a lot to me. But if someone says, great job on, on stage the other night, do you, it, how, is it really not you? It's, it's, it's your body. Well, I remember reading a really interesting, uh, you know those great, when we were growing up, I don't even know if they do them anymore, but when we were growing up, the greatest interviews, written interviews, were the Playboy interviews. Yeah. You know, oh, they the were one really with good. Brando, the one with Dustin. They were like the best interviews. And I remember reading one uh, that Malkovich did, and John was saying, I've met John through uh, the fourth McGinley, John Cusack. I've met John Malkovich through John a couple of times now. And John talked about, and at the time there was this big argument about uh, Stella Adler and Lee Strasberg, the two different schools of method acting in New York. And of course, Malkovich was from Chicago and not really a part of any of that New York scene. And he drew a distinction between, and this is not semantics, about uh, either becoming the character, which uh, De Niro had kind of really been on the tip of the spear of, whether it was Jake LaMotta or... And, and Dustin becoming um, um, sir. In, in with, with Cruz in that movie where he really became that, that person with challenges. Uh, Rain Man. And Rain Man. Yeah. Uh, you know, we believe Dustin had challenges. Right. And Malkovich, so they were becoming the character. And Malkovich said, I invite the, the character to become me. And I found it so interesting. And the question was, well, what do you mean? And the, Malkovich's answer was, well, I know me better than anyone I can go study. So if I'm going to go study a doctor to play in a movie, um, I, I just really want to know how to handle the props. And then I know, I, John Malkovich, know me and the college of eccentricities that I have roaming around in here better than anyone who I could ever possibly try to become. And I, I ascribe to... John's school 
of that. I invite people into the to John McGinley, and if if I can pick up a few eccentricities um, at boot camp with Oliver uh, in the Philippines about being an infantryman, then great. But I'm inviting Sergeant O'Neill in to be John McGinley. Again, that's an ass backwards way of reducing the lie. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll buy that. What what? What character do you think you and we can finish in a second? But what what character do you think is the closest to John C. McGinley that you've played? Um, I guess just by virtue of fatigue and and length of run, Doctor Cox would be just because it, I, we did almost two hundred episodes, and so what's interesting with actors is when they get tired, uh, those those ticks. And those really interesting things, that limp that you came up with in rehearsal or that whatever that thing you were going to do with your face. Around, around hour 18 on a set in year six, that <laughs> stuff starts to dissipate. And, and a lot of improvisation for your character on that role. No, no. Well, I, don't, I, heard, I read a lot of the, uh, the subtle back and forth jokes were more no. or less, you made those up. No, just transitions out of scenes. Ah, okay. I would... I would Billy Lawrence, who wrote it. you got to remember, on Scrubs, there was two rooms of seven writers who would leapfrog every episode. Right. And then Billy Lawrence, who was the executive producer, would ride roughshod over each episode and because it was his vision and he was in control. But the, the, pop, the people who were populating those two rooms of seven people all went to Harvard, right. all were uh, editors of The Lampoon, all were incredibly gifted men and women who have climbed the uppermost tier of, of that writing in Hollywood ladder. And so what they put on the page and gave to you for episode uh, seven of, of season two was really good. And it had to be because there's no time on TV sets, none. You have to pretty much say what's on the page because we got we to gotta go. You're going to shoot 11 pages today. And we're going to do the same thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And we're going to shoot into Saturday morning because we're going to get behind. And so my point is that you can, you can add some of your own flavor, which is improvisation, at the end of the scene to get us out of the scene as a transition. But you're, you really got to connect the dots with, with what you were handed. And I'm kind of a stickler about that. Because especially on, now on Stan, as the producer, there's no time. And Dana Gould, who's the executive producer on, on Stan, he ran the Simpsons writer's room for 10 years. Right. So that pedigree is indefatigable. It's, you can't touch it. You're going to want to say what Dana wrote on the page. And our ensemble has some unbelievably gifted improvisational actors, and I want them to bring their flavor. But after they've said what Dana wrote, yeah, and I'm a, I'm a little pragmatic about it, uh, or dog not pragmatic, dogmatic about it. I, I really want you to say what's on the page, because the show, just like Scrubs, a half hour of television is 21 minutes and 35 seconds. We, we need to write. We need to say what's on the page, because we're still going to cut 10 minutes of, out of what we're shooting. I mean, every time you shoot something, it always comes out to 35 minutes. There's some easy. 10-minute cuts. Now we're to 25 minutes. Now we got to do some Sophie's Choice in the editing room, and we got to chop some stuff. And so if you, in your scene, were pretty much just improvisation, improvis- improvising the whole time, it's not going to make it. 
we might steal that for a later episode for a storyline. Uh, we might borrow from whatever you brought. But we, the, the show's 21 minutes and 35 seconds. Yeah. That's a blink. And so, no, I did not improvise. I'm not a big, big improvisational person. I really like to lean in on the writer. I think it's, whether it's David Mamet or Oliver or Dana Gould or Billy, I, I love to lean in on the writer. That's great. I mean, those are great writers to lean in on. Do you think? <laughs> uh, any, I mean, I think we're done. Any, did you, did I, anything else I should ask you? No, I, that's fantastic. That's my favorite question. Any questions for me? Uh, your, your death row meal is what? You get your last meal. What is it? Fried chicken. And what Ma- else? Mashed potatoes with yeah. extra butter. Yeah. And a large Coca-Cola with lime. Nice. What about you? I'd probably have a beautiful steak, a grass-fed, organic, beautiful steak with some fries, maybe some asparagus, some kind of beautiful red Montepulciano, delicious Tuscany red, uh, a big, fat joint like the 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 girth of your thumb, <laughs> a Philly blunt. Um, uh, sorry, make that too. <laughs> and I'm not a big dessert guy, so I probably I'm going to get killed. So uh, I don't know. Probably have um, what do they make up in Northern Ireland? A black bush on the rocks. Oh, that's good. Uh, yeah, that might call it a. Yeah, that might do the trick. You know, after hearing yours, I'm going to change mine. I'd like to have a kilo of cocaine. Right, of course. And like probably, uh, I don't know, a couple, couple things of heroin. And then probably just a prostitute. And then I'm good to go. Is that bad? It's your last meal. It's my- <laughs> you can have whatever you want. We're going to kill you in 35 minutes. Yeah, so- I mean, fried chicken all of a sudden seems way yeah. less interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks for being on the show, John. Cheers. Appreciate it. See you in the shower, everybody. Hey, gotcha. Gotcha.